You are listening to Analyze Asia with Bernard Leung, the podcast dedicated to interview thought leaders and industry players to understand and dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by Ideal Workspace, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. You can visit their website, idealworkspace.com. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's great talking to you. We are talking to Catherine Shu from TechCrunch. So, Catherine, tell us your story. I do know that you come from the United States. So, how do you end up in Taiwan? <laughs> it's, it's really funny because my parents are actually from Taiwan. So, I think their minds were completely blown when I told them I was moving back to Taiwan because they moved to America to, you know, like a lot of immigrants is basically like settle and kind of give us a good future in America. But anyways, the reason I came to Taiwan was because I'd started dating my husband when we were in journalism school together. We went to Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. And before going to New York for to get his master's, my husband had worked in Taiwan for a while as he had a journalism job. He originally came to study Mandarin, but then he ended up being a journalist here. So after we graduated, he got offered a job here at a newspaper that he previously worked for. And so he told me about it. And I was like, okay, well, well Ty- Taiwan hadn't really been on my roadmap. But, you know, in addition to wanting to be with him, I also want to get to know more about my family's culture, learn Mandarin, because I grew up as a passive speaker of Mandarin, so I could comprehend it, but I couldn't speak it very well and I couldn't read it or, or write it. So it seemed like, a, you know, it just seemed like a really great opportunity to kind of learn more about my background experience being a reporter in a foreign country. Actually, when I first got here, I only planned to stay for like two or three years. I had a scholarship to stay Mandarin, so I figured I'd wrap that up, work a bit. But I ended up, I've been here for like eight years. So, yeah. But you were with Wall Street Journal first, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. And then that you was... moved to TechCrunch. Oh, no. Um, actually, the I worked at the Wall Street Journal online. That was my first paid journalism job after graduate school and so I worked there I, okay at first I worked at WSJ.com for less than a year as a news assistant which is kind of like the their basic entry-level position editorial job and then I moved on to Barron's.com and I wrote about legal insider trading and stocks individual stocks awesome. for them for about a year and a half and then I moved to Taiwan and took a year to study Mandarin. And then after that, I worked as a features reporter at the Taipei Times. Ah. Uh, and at the Taipei Times, that's actually when I got interested in covering tech. Because the thing is, as a features reporter, my beat was pretty general. I would interview a lot of people who had started small businesses, whether they were restaurants, design businesses, studios just anything that was interesting and kind of touched a bit on Taiwanese culture. And at some point I realized like I really enjoyed writing about these businesses, but they're like, they're very small. Like there are restaurants, maybe handcraft or art studios. They're kind of catering to a very small kind of market basically. And I realized that if I wanted my journalism career to grow, I would have to follow, you know, an industry that had more growth potential. So I thought, okay, why do I start covering tech startups? And the first startup I wrote about for the Taipei Times was actually Pinkoi, which is online marketplace for handcrafts, a little bit like Etsy, but it's all based in Asia. And I was just like, this is really fun. This is basically writing about people who started their own businesses, but who are trying to target 
a much larger, potentially worldwide market than the studios and other things that I was previously writing about. And so I wrote about more startups and that's eventually led me to TechCrunch. And then how's that switch from going from what I call mainstream journalism into something like a online media? Is there also some cultural change given that you are educated in a journalism school? Oh yeah, almost definitely. I mean, I think... You know, there's also this debate about whether or not journalism school is worth it. You know, I'm glad I went to Columbia because that's where I met my husband and I got to learn from a lot of interesting people. But when I went to Columbia, I graduated in 2005. So at that point, it was still very traditional, it was still very print-oriented. I mean, the whole idea was to train us to first be like local neighborhood beat reporters who would, could potentially produce like, you know, feature-length articles for publications like the New Yorker. So it's very kind of geared towards that mindset. I mean, the focus at Columbia Journalism School has shifted completely, it has shifted a lot since I went there. But when I was attending, there was just very little focus online journalism. I actually took a new media class. That was my concentration. Because I figured I was always more interested in figuring out how you disseminate information online. You know, when I was in high school, I had like a website. I started blogging early. I, I just found it fascinating, but it was a little bit frustrating kind of be at an educational institution where they're like, you know, things aren't legitimate until it's put in print. But, you know, I, then I started working at the Wall Street Journal online. And I think at that point, it was, I think they're among the first publications to figure out how you successfully monetize a website. I mean, at that point, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure what the stats are, but when I was working at the w, at WSJ.com, I think it was the largest paid online newspaper. So that was when I first got the sense that online journalism was something I would continue to pursue. But I kind of took a break with that while I was working at the Taipei Times because the Taipei Times is so very print-oriented. Um, but at the same time, I started blogging. I would blog and share my stories online, and I actually met a lot of friends and connections that way. So the, I guess the shift from working for a newspaper to working for TechCrunch wasn't as dramatic as it could have been because I already had some experience in terms of kind of thinking about writing for an online audience. I think the challenge for me is, at TechCrunch has been kind of like figuring out how to, you know, kind of establish my own blogging voice, keeping readers engaged, while at the same time kind of providing enough analysis and context so they feel like they learn something new every time they read mm. a post by me. Yeah, and it's so quick moving too. I mean, it's just, it's very fast, but at the same time, it's kind of fun because I've been working at TechCrunch for two years. The fun part is that I've just been able to watch the tech industry in Asia change a lot. And also not not just from within Asia, but also how the way it's perceived in the West has also changed too. I spoke to your colleague, John Russell, and he covers Southeast Asia. And I have been following your coverage as well. You covered a lot in the North Asia, particularly the area what we call the CJK, uh, China, Japan, Korea. I'm sure mm -hmm. that includes also Hong Kong and Taiwan. Yeah. From your two years of experience covering this region, and this is probably the most exciting region in Asia now. I mean, China itself is a big behemoth. So what do you see in terms of trends in this region are like, I mean, just a sort of a general feel before we deep dive into each of these countries and discuss each one of them. Do you find any common behavior in terms of maybe cultural wise, in terms of startups, in terms of how the technology scene have evolved? Well, in terms of common themes, I mean, I'm really glad to, John joined us, I think, a few months ago, and I'm really glad to have him on a team 
because you know everything like every region in Asia is growing so fast and but at the same time you know there's also different trends just commonalities like you mentioned let me see uh, I think the trends that I'm most excited about seeing I think kind of like the increasing opportunities for startup founders just the, the growing ecosystems in different cities and the opportunities that founders there have for mentorship as well as for financial resources like venture capital backing. It's kind of exciting to see like where I am in Taiwan seeing kind of the infrastructure that's been built up for OEMs hard for hardware manufacturing. They do manufacturing for a lot of companies, but it's exciting to see how startups here are also beginning to take advantage of them. And it's also exciting to see how trends, tech trends in Asia start to filter over to the West because before I think, you know, Asia, like Asia tech industry had a reputation like you're either they're either an OEM or copycats, you know, but you're beginning to see how consumer trends in Asia are beginning to influence companies in the West. So that's particularly exciting for me as somebody who spends all my time like right and thinking about Asia tech for Western audience. So you're talking about things like fabulous messaging apps, for example. Oh, yeah. I, I remember when I first started at TechCrunch two years ago, like the conversation about phablets was still like, what the heck are these things? Why would somebody want like a phone that's the size of your face? Right. But the thing is like, uh, phablets started popping up, becoming popular in Taiwan. Like before then, I think I would say like about four or five years ago, I started seeing them supplant the iPhone as the most popular uh, you know, as as the smartphones I would see most often when I was out and above on the MRT or walking down the street. And, you know, it to me at first it was counterintuitive because I don't like having a big phone personally. But the thing is, like, everybody had, like, a big Samsung tablet. And this was before, this is when they were still, you know, when they were, I guess, pretty rare in the West and seen as a novelty but they're already being adopted very widely in Asia. And the same thing with messaging platforms. I think the things that are happening with Line, WeChat, the fact they're kind of turning to these lifestyle platforms that people could go to for like all these different things, like calling taxis, streaming music, playing games with their friends, in addition to you know sharing status updates and stickers and whatnot. It's kind of interesting to see how that's making its way over to Facebook Messenger. Um, and I also know that Snapchat's founder has said that Tencent and, you know, the work they've been doing with WeChat has kind of been very influential to him in terms of figuring out, like, brainstorming ways to monetize Snapchat. Yeah, and then I also mentioned, like, and then even silly little things like selfie sticks. I know in Asia, when I was in New York, if I'd taken a selfie, I would have felt very self-conscious. But in Asia, when I first moved here, like, people are so obsessed with photography. And then, you know, selfies, like, as soon as smartphones took off, like, selfies became pretty popular here. And it's really funny because selfie sticks, I remember reading about them online a year ago, like, as people would be like, look at this crazy thing Asian people are doing, like, attaching their smartphone to a stick or their camera to a stick and taking a photo of themselves. But now there's, like, these thought pieces in, like, the New York Times about selfie sticks and what they mean for online culture. So I, I just think it's really hilarious, kind of seeing the way that various Asia trends, especially in consumer tech, have kind of influenced um, what's going on in Western markets like the U.S. too. So in terms of like messaging apps, you know, in the West is very utility focused. I mean, oh, yeah, if you definitely. look at WhatsApp, it's just a utility, right? Yeah, it's like As an SMS replacement, essentially. That's right. But in the Asia, messaging apps are viewed more, as you rightly, rightfully put it, lifestyle platforms. Is it more of a cultural 
thing or do you think it's the way how we innovate to sort of integrate it with our lifestyle? That's a, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I thought a little bit about that. It started because people were started using WeChat and Line instead of Facebook or even like Weibo in China. I don't know. I'm not sure if I recollect correctly, but I know Sina Weibo and the other micro blogging platforms in China have lost users to WeChat. Yeah, uh, so, Oh yeah, de- yeah, definitely a lot of them. And it's kind of interesting because, and I don't know if it's because Facebook never localized well enough to capture kind of like you know the tension of the long term attention of Asian users. I remember Facebook became popular in Taiwan a few years after it was a big thing in the US but I remember at that time people were mostly using it to play games it's, it's really interesting because I've, I've, that's actually a question I've been thinking of like how did messaging apps kind of just go from like you know a, a free replacement for SMS to be basically these one-stop shops where like you, you know you could order a taxi online in Japan you could order food through it you could listen to music you could make online mobile payments you could yeah that's actually a question I've thought about and I, I wonder if it's because they basically stepped up into a void like you know Facebook wasn't quite doing it for users here it was kind of like they actually turned the messaging system around on its head and just use it to do transactions. For example, I know in Chinese New Year, which is coming, we can send money to each other using WeChat. Yeah, so it'd be kind of like a, a online like red envelope. Yes, it was quite funny because I was trying out that feature with a friend in China and I have to sort of get him to send me up, well, the equivalent of two US dollars to see exactly how it works and then I have to send it back to him with the yeah. transaction fee yeah. gone back. So to get that kind of flipping the SMS model and just use it to do transactions. I thought that that was pretty unique in the Asia market. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but I, I mean, moving ahead, we if we go into each of these countries, I guess the, the first country, of course, you and I know the largest and definitely all the American VCs rush there without thinking is China. Oh, yeah, most definitely. How did, what, what has changed? I mean, well, we, the days of the Clone Wars are over. Am I right? I think they are, but people would argue that they aren't because they, there are a lot of people, I think, who think of Xiaomi as just basically being a big clone factory, as basically being an Apple knockoff. But I think that's kind of like uh, Ben Thompson on, let's see, Stratechery. I don't. I hope I pronounced that Yep, you pronounced it right, yeah. Oh, good. Okay, well, he wrote this really interesting post today about what Xiaomi's ambition, what strategies are, and, you know, how it's kind of become going beyond being a smartphone vendor to being a lifestyle brand. Because, you know, people who buy a Xiaomi smartphone who see Xiaomi as kind of like this aspirational brand that makes kind of beautiful hardware are also going to buy, like, things like air purifiers and less less sexy household appliances from Xiaomi also, and smart TVs, internet routers, other things it's kind of like I think readers I mean people well people in the West I think have kind of misunderstood Xiaomi's ambitions since they started they started out I I think it's it's definitely like a misnomer to think of Xiaomi as just being like an Apple cloner or just being like a maker of like cheap smartphones their their ambitions are much larger than that and I remember when Xiaomi like two years ago when it first started like Xiaomi the kind of coverage of it was oh look at Leidrine he's like a um he started trying to be Steve Jobs with like his you know with his clothing and his presentations and everything but they kind of ignore the fact that he's one of China's 
top tech entrepreneurs with that kind of pedigree at its founding team. Like Xiaomi was always destined to be like much more than just an Apple knockoff factory. He's also a super angel too. Yes. He oh yeah. Invested in so many companies. I mean, in, if you want to compare like for like, well, Steve Jobs is not a super angel. Has not invested in very successful companies. He has, and if you look at, I think he had IPO two companies before yeah. this one as well. Yeah. Yeah. So in in terms of Xiaomi, uh, Samir Singh, my last guest, and I had this conversation um about Xiaomi. We uh, just a couple of interesting notes to think. So I spoke to friends in China about their air purifiers. So as you know, Beijing is kind of the nuclear winter for air. Oh yeah, exactly. So yeah. they told me that they are not buying the Xiaomi air purifiers because they are they, are, they have not passed the Hepta standards. Yeah, is, I saw that today. Actually, yes, so there's was, actually foreign that they don't measure up to um, kind of these foreign imports. Yes, and I was pointing that out to Ben Thompson. The same article that you point to and say that you know they have they are still they still need to beat Novita and Honeycomb, which is the gold standard for air purifiers. But that being said, they will move upstream because they're becoming a brand and making something that works you do you see them going to become more platform centric or are they actually a consumer hardware business hmm, that's kind of hard for me to say mm. some people think that they are actually an amazon model right and even even they claim themselves as an amazon type company because everything is the smartphones are so at cost if i'm not wrong mm-hmm. oh yeah yeah they are but i they, believe so but they make money through the media through all the content that they have within the Xiaomi phone, at least in China, that's what, how I understand their monetization model really is. So if, do you see them going towards becoming a brand rather than becoming a platform? Because this is probably the most important question for Xiaomi going out because they may end up, if they don't manage their growth well like Samsung, they might end up in the same direction in Samsung. Well, I know that Xiaomi, for instance, you know, they have their smart TV brands. Um, there's, I mean, there are smart TVs. I think they're called Me TVs. Um, and they recently said that they were going to invest one billion in video content. And they have been striking up partnerships with the leading streaming video providers in China. So you know, in terms of getting content on to these smart TVs to entice people into buying them. So it's kind of interesting to see where they're going to head in that direction. Because I remember like when Xiaomi first came out, people were trying to figure out how to make money because the smartphones obviously sell for very low. And the margins on a smartphone are obviously probably very tight. You know, people were speculating that Xiaomi is going to make money through its software and content. So I think that might be a direction that they're going to go in, but I'm not completely sure. It's a little bit hard to like speculate what Xiaomi is going to be up to because they're a really interesting company to cover. They're always, they're up to so many things and they're, they're growing so rapidly, but there's so, also like... So it's, you, you feel that you can't nail down exactly what they are at the moment still? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that still remains to be seen. I mean, I think it's kind of hard to speculate about Xiaomi because, I mean, a lot of speculation, I mean, I'm kind of afraid to because a lot of the speculation analysis I see about Xiaomi ends up being a bit wrong or a little bit like tunnel visioned or maybe from a bit too much from like a Western perspective. For example, the kind of whole thing, people being like, well, well when Xiaomi can come to the U.S. and like, how are they going to brand themselves when they come to the U.S.? And you know, people don't understand that that's besides the point. Like, Xiaomi has plenty of growth opportunities in Southeast Asia, India, um, Latin America. But they also have difficulty in going to the U.S. because of patent issues. 
Oh the, yeah, yeah. IP the legal lawsuits will yeah. all be will all be on their toes. Not just from Apple. I'm sure Apple will be first in line, but I'm sure there's Samsung and some of the other companies which are based in the US. Motorola, which is now owned by Lenovo, will go after them in terms of yeah. IP issues. Oh yeah, most definitely. Mm. But of course, China Xiaomi is not China, right? There is the what. Back companies, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, Axis, I call it. Oh, yeah. You've seen yeah. them. Yeah, they call the bad companies, which is quite a cool term for them. I mean, in well, 10 years ago when I first came back to Singapore after living seven years in the UK, you know, there were a lot of talk about all these clones. But I think after 10 years, these are the three big companies standing now. I mean, Baidu mm-hmm. owning Search, Alibaba owning e-commerce. Uh, full disclosure, I work for a company that's invested by Alibaba and Tencent from QQ Messenger to WeChat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you see them as these three companies? What are their influence within the Chinese market itself? Out of the three, Alibaba's definitely received the most attention last year because it had, you know, that record-breaking IPO. You know, obviously China's becoming a I think it's currently the world's largest e-commerce market or it's on its way to becoming the world's largest e-commerce market I think depending on what research you look at but yeah so Alibaba you know it's known for its IPO it's known for e-commerce but the fascinating thing about it is that it's so much more than just an e-commerce company they also have cloud computing big data they've gotten into the movie production business they just announced today that their movie studio is gonna distribute a f- film produced by Wong Kar Wai who did it in the mood for love. They also have like an investment in a football team, you know, a soccer team. Yes. So it's, it's um, Alibaba. Yeah. I think they're also um, investing in us companies as well as in Indian e-commerce companies. And of course, you know, they have that they're tied to Yahoo too, because Yahoo owns a big stake in Alibaba. So it's, it's really fascinating. It just goes beyond being kind of like, alibaba.com or their online marketplaces uh, and in going public they didn't even put alipay in, into it right as well oh yeah alipay too yeah yes. I mean, so, so that, that's kind of like the yeah, trump card at the moment because nobody exactly know how much they are making on alipay yeah exactly so you know paypal is going to be split from ebay oh yeah would you see alibaba acquiring paypal well that's really interesting because paypal has no competitive advantage once it goes on its own, right? I'm sure Visa, Mastercard will look at them, even though they're competitors. But um, Alibaba now would have the financial clout to go after a company like PayPal. Yeah, I mean, I know there's been speculation about it being kind of Alipay, like they have their eyes set on it in terms of kind of penetrating mm. international markets. Be, I mean, that interesting possibility because that's really kind of like I think that's the only way they could really get into like the US markets um, European markets so I mean that's something that's on the table for them but you know it's hard to say for sure if that's going to happen okay we, we can watch it once they do the split and then we we can have some uh, gen- gentlemen and ladies bet on that <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah okay but coming to the other two the Baidu and Tencent what about mm-hmm. Baidu? I mean, they go into smart chopsticks. They hired off Andrew Ng from Coursera and Google X to run their deep learning labs now. So where's Baidu? I mean, of the three, it feels that they are the weakest. Yeah, I think there's basically, they kind of fell behind Alibaba and Tencent in terms of tapping the opportunities that mobile. But at the same time, they're doing some really interesting things 
in artificial intelligence. Um, you know, they have the art, artificial intelligence, the research and development center in Silicon Valley. They have a massive amount of brain power um, that they've been using to develop, you know, things like, well, they have their kind of Google Glass competitor. They have smart bikes. Um, chopsticks too, smart chopsticks. Oh, smart chopsticks, yeah. Uh, the smart chopsticks too. I know they released something called just in terms of things that are kind of easy, more easily accessible to consumers. They have a Baidu Translate app, which kind of uses kind of Im- image recognition software. So you could just you know take a picture of an object and I'll tell you how to, what the object's called in Chinese. And they're kind of using that to develop their tech further. Mm. So they, they did an investment in Uber. Does it mean oh, that yeah. they will bring Uber to China? That's the other question that, that seems to be like the $50 million question that everybody's asking now. Well, I know with that, partnership is really important for Uber because, I mean, Uber has two major competitors in China. One uh, is par- called Didi Dacha and yeah. the other one, um, Didi Dacha is owned by, is it Alibaba? Yeah, it's owned by Alibaba. Uh, Investor by Alibaba. Kwai Di Data. Kwai Di Data. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's and it. let me see. Alibaba is backed by Kwai Di, and I believe DD Data is backed by Tencent. Right. So, so it's yeah. So they, so so now Baidu finally has its kind of like you know its car calling okay. app play. My understanding is that Baidu plans to integrate Uber into Baidu Maps. So basically, you know, if you like, it's kind of like the same thing with Uber and Google Maps in. U.S. after Google Ventures became an investor in Uber. It's basically, you know, if you open up Baidu Maps looking for a place, they'll suggest like, why, why, why don't you call an Uber? Mm. But here's yeah. the thing. Marriages with Western companies have never worked in China. I mean, a couple of years ago, Tencent had a partnership and an investment in Groupon and it didn't work out. So, yeah. well, what makes us think that Uber and Baidu will work out? Well, that's, I think that's the big question is last week there were reports that Uber had been banned in China. And it turned out those were like, you know, people were just jumping the gun and assuming it was actually the legislation that had been passed in China was it banned taxi apps from offering rides with unlicensed cars as opposed to, and, and Uber uses like, a, um, I, th- I think they use a contractor for their car fleet so that doesn't the law doesn't apply to them you know but at the same time it's kind of like uber obviously you know they've had a lot of problems with regulations in different parts of the world part teaming up with baidu is that is kind of trying you know have it's it's having basically a partner in china who can help them figure out those regulations but you know you, it's still hard to say for certain exactly like how well they're going to do in china both in terms of like user adoption and in terms of dealing with the regulations in all the different provinces and cities mm. There's been also been a long-term speculation about Facebook going into China through Baidu, but you know nothing have happened on that side either. No, it's like in Facebook. I I know Mark Zuckerberg. He he famously gave his um, Q and A in Chinese. Yeah. Which I thought was impressive because I couldn't do a public Q and A in Chinese. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I, I think during his Q and A, he said, "Okay, even though Facebook doesn't have a presence in China aside from the people who access it." through VPNs, it's still like Chinese companies still use it to advertise. They still use it to like find users and to kind of get their brands out there. So it's still kind of, I guess you could say they're still kind of doing business in China that way, though. Well, he has a strong friendship with the founder of Baidu, right? So something along with Robin Lee, yeah? Yeah, Robin Lee. Then it comes back to Tencent. We talk about WeChat. They have actually done a lot of uh, acquisition of content recently. Uh, do you think that they will go head-to-head with Xiaomi in terms of 
content acquisition? I mean, I think in terms of content, I think Tencent's a lot more developed. I mean, Tencent's mostly like kind of internet company and Xiaomi is right now it's you know it's like we discussed we don't really know it's kind of hard to say for certain like what their ultimate ambition is going to be at this point but I mean I don't know it's it's like well with Xiaomi making so much investment streaming video at, at some point maybe they might want to launch their apps they might want to build up build up like a online ecosystem mm. that's maybe similar to Tencent. Maybe that's a possibility. It would, I think, definitely give them more chances for monetization. Mm. You also covered, I think they have partnerships with Sony as well in music, in Ten- Tencent. Oh, Tencent. Yeah, Tencent. Like Sony, they, Sony's music business and also Warner Music Group. And in Korea, they also did, I think it's called YG. They also did a partnership with a major K-pop studio. I think it's the one that has Psy. They that has Psy on its roster. Mm. So yeah, they're definitely building out their kind of streaming music catalog. Okay, we talk about the big guys. Any interesting startups that are going to be the next Alibaba and the next Tencent? In um, China? Mm. Let's see, China, honestly, like I think Xiaomi is probably the most interesting startup story right now, in my they're opinion. They're already $1 billion. Don't you think they're a real company now? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I know. It's probably startups a misnomer. We actually had like a... a conversation like there was actually an article on TechCrunch that of like what exactly is a startup I know there's a lot of debate over um, what's a startup like how do you define a startup is it how many years it's been operating if it's had an exit yet like is it a so I'll, I'll just look at your list you covered a company called E-H-A-N-G is it E-Hang which is E-Hang. drones what do they do E-Hang oh basically they make a drone that's supposed to be basically very easy to operate it's operated with a smartphone app it could track users depending on position so you don't have to go around like guiding it all over the place. Um, you can kind of map out where it goes. It's targeted towards, it's not a cheap drone. I think it's about, I might be getting numbers a little bit wrong, but I think it's about 500 to $1,000. I mean, they're, they're not targeted towards people who just want to fly, you know, like people who buy a parrot drone and just want to kind of have fun flying it around. This is kind of geared towards people who want to take kind of videos with their GoPro cameras, sports videos, do basically aerial cinematography. I think they're very interesting because it's not just a ghost drone, which is the drone I was just describing. They're also planning to work on commercial drones. So drones that could potentially be used for logistics and other, you know, professional, you know, enterprise slash commercial applications. I think we have enough of China. Let's go to where you are, Taiwan. Taiwan, yeah, Taiwan. (laughs) What's the Taiwanese technology ecosystem i would i haven't had anyone talked about it in analyze asia so you are the best person now to talk about it taiwan is actually a uh, fascinating i mean i don't even know where to start you know I'm, I'm actually reading a book about called how asia works by joe studwell yes, that's a basically, good book. oh yeah yeah and you know it's about economic development in yes. um, several asian economies and His description of southeast asia is spot on i mean i'm just learning a lot about taiwan because i know taiwan had its kind of economic miracle in the 70s and 80s i never knew how that came about and but at the same time it kind of plays into the syrup industry as it's developing right now because the syrup industry a lot of it it depends on kind of like people who originally trained to be engineers at foxconn or htc or the big companies you know or who are kind of taking advantage of the hardware manufacturing infrastructure here too get their products to ship the products basically i think you know taiwan it's history is interesting because they're kind of like in this place right now where they're trying to figure out how to move on from being like a oem for foreign tech companies to kind of 
innovating and developing, you know, tech startups, mm. like homegrown tech startups, but at the same time, kind of try to figure out where the potential audience or user base for that is because Taiwan itself, it's, it's really small. So I think it's about 20 to 23 million people. So I remember when I first started covering startups here about four years ago, the big question for them was like, basically, where are we going to go? Because China is kind of closed off to Taiwan. I mean, it's a hard ecosystem to penetrate because there's so many, there's so much competition there. Plus there are like cultural differences. China and Taiwan are, are not, I mean, it's going to politically tricky territory here, but China, mm -hmm. China and Taiwan are obviously very different. So China might seem like the obvious market at first glance, but definitely not. And so, you know, start founders I talked to would talk about like, well, potentially maybe we could go to Japan, but that's also kind of a closed ecosystem. Maybe we could go to Korea, but Korea already has a lot of startups of its own. Maybe Southeast Asia is a potential market. Maybe the U.S. if we have people who understand, you know, how you navigate investors and, and consumers in the U.S. So when I first started here, they were trying to figure out what their audience would be. They are trying to figure out what kind of resources they could leverage. It's kind of like a slow and gradual progress. But I think one of the interesting things about Taiwan is that you're kind of gradually seeing more hardware startups that have been able to kind of take advantage of the manufacturing capabilities here to develop like innovative products at relatively affordable prices. Mm. So you have like companies like iFit, for example. Yeah, iFit's, iFit's interesting because they are one of the companies that is definitely targeting growth in Southeast Asia. And they started as a Facebook fan page. So, you know, it's, it's fascinating. I think they had a Facebook fan page before they had like their own website and community and they they're also it's an online to offline model because they basically also selling a lot of um, it's an e-commerce model because they're selling a lot of goods mm. uh they're striking up partnerships in terms of so you know people could go buy ifit branded food ifit branded exercise equipment so they started off in taiwan but i believe they're going to malaysia so yeah they're definitely an example of a taiwanese company that's kind of targeting southeast asia for growth Okay. What about um, Lifehouse.in? You cover the company. What do they do? Yeah, Lifehouse is like, it's a relatively small startup, but it's really interesting because in terms of like, one of the interesting things actually is that the mayor of Taiwan, the incumbent mayor of Taiwan, Ko Wenjie, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his English name correctly, Ko Wenjie. Basically, he kind of set up a ch channel on Lifehouse to be able to communicate with voters here. And he also had a, he also posted his white paper, his kind of com campaign platform on Gitbook. Mm. And let me see, I'm trying to figure out what else he did online. But he was very like savvy in terms of figuring out how to reach younger voters online through the tools and platforms that they would use. And it's kind of exciting to see kind of startups like Lifehouse pop up that give people an opportunity to communicate with public figures political figures. Another startup that it, it's because the media landscape in Taiwan for a long time is basically dominated by three newspapers. It was the Liberty Times, the United Daily and Apple, Apple Daily. Mm -hmm. Liberty, Liberty Times is um, pro DPP, the opposition party here. United Daily is 
Pro KMT and Apple Dilly is just a crazy tabloid. Okay, <laughs> we better also inform our audience that Apple Dilly is owned by Rupert Murdoch, if I'm not wrong. Oh no, actually, it's owned by Jimmy Lai. Jimmy Lai, He's sorry, yeah. Hong Kong, so the Hong Kong's version of Rupert Murdoch. Yes. Yeah, Hong Kong tycoon. Yes. But I probably like a little bit more. I have more respect for Jimmy Lai than I have for Rupert Murdoch. I think okay. he's a little bit like uh, he's he's very pro democracy and he mm. puts himself out there. So you talk about hardware startup. Um, there is a very interesting company you did have a pre-discussion a little bit called Gogoro. Oh, Gogoro, yeah. yeah. Well, um, they raised about hundred fifty million dollars. Yeah, well, they're in self mode and like nobody knew what they were doing. Right. So do you know what they're doing now? Uh, they make an electric scooter and they also are developing the infrastructure so people could actually charge their bikes wow. once they get, once they get their hands on them. So yeah, it's been the, a really good project. They are like Tesla for motorcycles. Yeah, basically, essentially. I mean, I guess yeah, that's a that's a pretty good um, analogy. Wow. Yeah, and I mean, scooters are obviously bigger. To, like they're they're all over the place in Taipei, and you know they contribute to a lot to the air pollution. So you can figure out a way to replace the scooters we have now with electric scooters. Mm-hmm. Taiwan and Thailand, any any other place where like scooters are main transportation transportation method, it, mm-hmm. it would obviously be really good for an environment. Would you think that something like Gogoro would go into somewhere like Indonesia? Because Indonesia is also a very motorcycle landscape. Because of as a developing country, um, a lot of economies actually generated with the ownership of uh, motorcycles. Actually, yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. Like anywhere in Southeast Asia where mm. you know people use scooters instead of cars. I think India too. I think in India, and the government's basically they have begun a program to encourage people to buy more electric scooters because of concerns about pollution. You know, let's see, just any country where basically scooters dominate. I mean, I know in the U.S. they're considered, scooters are considered a novelty, but they're all over the place in Taiwan, Southeast Asia, India too, I think. I'm not quite sure. So they're the most exciting company now with a lot of dollars in their bank. It's fascinating because they just came, well, obviously they've been working for a long time on electric scooters, but they just had their big, they just unveiled their scooter at CES and obviously they've raised like a significant amount of funding especially for a Taiwanese startup that's a lot and I think they're a good example of a Taiwanese hardware startup that's basically kind of using the hardware infrastructure here and creating a product that could basically be useful to people outside of Taiwan. There's another one that you mentioned which is Jumpy. Jumpy, yeah. I thought it was like they had a Kickstarter campaign. They actually didn't meet their goal on Kickstarter, but I saw the product demoed and I really liked it as a smartwatch for kids. I mean, you know, there's a whole question of like, okay, are kids, A, are like smartwatches in general, like, if, are people actually going to buy them? The question is like, okay, then how useful will be they be for kids? But, you know, I saw it and I thought this is definitely something that I would love to get if I had a kid in terms of just encouraging them to move around stay active you know engage with like the environment physical toys around them i thought it was really well made and they had like a manufacturing partnership with foxconn so i mean if there's enough buyer interest in it there is like it, it wouldn't be vaporware it would definitely get made so yeah i thought yeah that's another example of like a hardware startup in taipei i think has potential even though they didn't make their goal on kickstarter mm. Okay, so if you look at the sort of Taiwan ecosystem, are all the startup activity actually centralized at Taipei? I would say most of it is. But then the factories, the hardware manufacturing hubs are based in different cities. But in terms of their offices, they're in Taipei. I believe Fluxus. Flux is a 3D printer that's gained a lot of attention because it's modular. You could also add things to it like 
laser engraved ceramics and pastry printing. It's fascinating. And then I know Pebble also had her stuff manufactured in Taiwan and Gaoshan, I think, actually. So yeah, things are like they're headquartered in Taipei, but the manufacturing, the hubs are all... But but Taiwan is, of course, a tiny country. You could kind of travel from top to bottom in two hours on the high speed rail. But in in terms of, it is almost like a Shenzhen before the Shenzhen ecosystem turned up, right? Yeah. Because I, of the OEMs. I mean, the tradition, I mean, Foxconn is actually owned by Taiwanese, but a lot of people think that they are a Chinese company. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. So that's a good example. So basically the people with expertise in building OEMs are actually in Taiwan. Yeah. Yeah. They're definitely like OEMs. And I think that's part of like the setup for hardware startups to kind of get going in Taiwan is the fact that a lot of the manufacturing work that the OEMs in Taiwan used to pick up is going to Shenzhen and then I think to a certain extent to Southeast Asia too but yeah it's definitely it's moving outside of like Taiwan there's still this kind of manufacturing are these manufacturing resources here but people are kind of trying to figure out how to leverage them but would it sort of like they move upscale because they are now kind of innovating on hardware yeah exactly I mean basically you get come up with idea and then work with different yeah I mean they have like a lot of manufacturers to choose from. So if like you you meet with one manufacturer who can't deliver what you want, you could a lot of alternatives you could pursue. It's inexpensive. I mean, you could travel between the factories in a day. So yeah, it's it's a it's a good situation for hardware startups here. What about VCs? Are there any existing VCs, angels that people know about? Uh, VCs. I mean, it's in terms of Taiwanese VCs, it's. I mean, it's I, there's a there's a lot more of a shortage. I mean, the ones I hear from the most often are TMI and AppWorks, uh, and I know that Foxconn has also started investing in some startups. Yeah, I think VC funding is very it's it's kind of scarce here. I, I guess hardware startups they've had more luck than software. Uh, I mean, software internet startups. Oh, which is interesting. It's a reverse in at least other parts of Southeast Asia. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating because I'm trying to think because I could, I could list up all of these like hardware startups from Taipei or Taiwan just off the top of my head. But in terms of like internet startups that are gaining traction outside of Taiwan, it's a little bit harder. The ones I could think of include the News Lens, which is kind of like, it's a news website, but it kind of provides alternative to newspapers I mentioned earlier. It definitely fits, steps into a void for, for people in terms of like where they, because it's basically like a less politically biased news source. Hmm. And they're talking about, they're planning to kind of expand into other Chinese speaking countries. It, so that's exciting. And I know they they picked up a bit of like out, investment from outside Taiwan. Pinkoi, Pinkoi is marketplace, the handcraft marketplace I mentioned before. They've also gotten investment from a Japanese investor and they're moving to Japan. Hmm. Yeah, but it's, it's a little bit harder for, I think, when internet startups in... I, I know Picolage. Picolage and a lot of Taiwanese startups have gotten support from 500 startups. Hmm. Um, and then there's another firm here called Cherubic Ventures, which ha- invested in iFit and Lifehouse. Is there any incubators? Incubators. In yeah. Well, there's AppWorks. Um, and then TMI and TMI has actually let's see I have talked to quite a few TMI companies because they, they have a co-working space and they also provide kind of like seed funding or actually angel investment so the ones I've talked to there include Roman Wonder which does children's toys that kind of integrates smartphones to smartphone apps um, Code Mentor is kind of like this one-on-one market marketplace where you get 
help for um, coding from experts. There was a driving app whose name I can't recall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow, you're typing very fast. Yeah, I know. Oh, it's called Driving Curve. And let me see. Yeah, so let me see. So TMI, yeah, TMI has been doing a lot of work with companies that are looking outside the Taiwanese market. Uh, are there any like notable personalities in Taiwan, like angel investors, you know, the Ron Conway equivalent sitting inside Taiwan? The most prominent one is, I would say, Kai Fu Lee. He was former, formerly the head of Google China. Mm-hmm. Also, the and, CEO of Innovation Works. Yeah, the CEO of Innovation Works. So I think uh, in Innovation Works is linked to TMI. I'm not sure exactly how they're. Let me see. I'm just looking up how they're. Basically, TMI originated from Innovation Works. But I, Kai Fu Lee, I mean, he's definitely influential in terms with his background. People listen to him when he has something to say. And I remember like. Last year, there was some discussion because he basically said that founders in Taiwan, their vision is a little bit too narrow, you know, and part of it comes from living in such a small country with like only about 23 million people. And that's something, you know, I've heard that from other, I've heard that from startup founders as well. There's like the saying that's like small country, small dreams. It's basically like Kai Fu Lee and, you know, a lot of other people in startup scene think that Taiwan has to think beyond its boundaries it has to start gearing its mindset towards to be more more universal and more ambitious so taiwan has 23 million in population singapore is only five and we are really screaming our heads out of being (laughs) a small market i mean 23 million for you know we are trying to get to 10 million and you know we think that that is a good market to start out for us and now you're telling me 23 million is still considered small. Oh, yeah. Well, that's not, I guess, I mean, it's not fair to say that it's too small. But I yeah. think, um, you know, when I was covering more kind of culture, more general feature stuff at the Taipei Times, people were also like, you know, they're constantly like talking about how people kind of here live in a bubble. I mean, I don't know. I don't think that's necessarily accurate. I mean, I feel like people here are very curious, especially especially younger people. I mean, there was this, I'm going off on a tangent now, but there's, you know, people used to refer to people here in like their 20s and early 30s as the strawberry generation, mm-hmm. kind of very kind of weak-willed, pampered. They grew up after the economic miracles. So they didn't understand hard work the way their parents and grandparents did. But then you have things like sunflower movement happening, like people becoming very politically vocal, kind of people paying attention to the pro-democracy movements going on in Hong Kong, people electing like independent candidate as Taiwan's mayor. I think basically it's kind of unfair to say that, you know, small country equals small dreams. I think Taiwan startup industry here is still very young. And as with everything else, like Taiwan's political scene, other industries, there's still a lot of room to grow. And, you know, it's hard to say exactly where it's going to end up. But I think there's a lot of promise. Mm. So are there going to be like any interesting conferences, events that are going to happen in Taipei where, you know, overseas entrepreneurs or overseas investors would be welcome to take a look at this kind of um i think hardware focused ecosystem although there's also significant software startups as well well the major one is computex computex and it happens in june and computex is like completely insane and it's mostly geared towards it's a it's a hardware trade show basically in terms of other events relatively scarce actually i wish there are more events in taiwan because it'd be easier for me to get to them all right well, yeah singapore have a lot of startup conferences actually 
Oh yeah, Singapore is definitely. I went to Echelon yes. last last summer. Oh, you were there in the Echelon conference. Yeah. Ah,、oh. have you seen Startup Asia yet? By Tech in Asia. Tech in Asia. Well, I've been to their events here in Taipei, but I haven't actually been to their、um, their big conference.、Mm. So I guess well, we are almost running out of time. So、oh, well, I actually wanted to talk to you about South Korea, Japan, and Hong Kong, but I kind of just want to do a brief. Glimpses of each of these countries, given that you have covered them as well. What is your take on South Korea? I mean, just just as a quick, in terms of looking at Samsung, and also the, I mean, the startup space. I think Nathan Miller from Be Success was gave has given me kind of kind of a lowdown on the incubators and the startups. What what do you think about Samsung in South Korea now? Samsung is fascinating because it's when I first started TechCrunch two years ago, people were like, "Whoa, Samsung! Look at them in their smartphones!" Like, there's all this like all these think pieces about how Samsung, like people thought of them as being this boring household appliance maker, and all of a sudden they're taking over the smartphone market. But then you you're beginning to see Samsung's like market share erode. Thanks to well, thanks in large part to Xiaomi, basically other like people who are making good smartphones and selling them at. Competitive prices,、uh, but you know Samsung is obviously it's it's more than just a smartphone maker. I mean they're one like the dominant corporations in South Korea. They'll continue to be influential. It's actually what I find most interesting about the South Korea's tech industry is that the government has been they've been very supportive of startups, tech startups. I would say like especially compared to other countries in in Asia. I mean, and I think part of it's. Is to wean off like the kind of hold that cabals. I think I don't know. How do you pronounce cabals? I'm so bad at pronouncing words. But cabals like、um, the big companies, big corporations like Samsung, the hold that they have on South Korea's economy.、Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's that's good news for for South Korean startups. I mean, it's not necessarily that like South Korean startups are going to rise as. Samsung declines. Like Samsung is going to continue to be strong. There's a lot of government support for the startup ecosystem, and there's also startups that have received significant funding too, like Copang, Wuwa Brothers.、Um, they received a lot of funding from Goldman Sachs for their food delivery app, and 433 Game Studio got money from both Line and Tencent. So, yeah, and those all happened like in the, the last quarter of. 2014. So we're starting to see kind of VC interest in South Korea like increase very rapidly.、Mm. How about Japan then? I mean, I just have a guess. In fact, my last guess is talking about Japan. So Japan, Japan. I actually wish I knew more about Japan. Like I. Except for Line, is it? <laughs> yeah, except for Line. I I know a lot about Line because I'm always online. Japan. I've I've been told that I need to cover Japan more, but it's a little bit harder because it's like a closed ecosystem. I mean, okay, I don't know if it's fair to describe as completely closed, but it's a lot more insular than other ecosystems are in Asia because they're very like chi- Japan startups. I think they basically focus on a lot of them focus on the Japan market, but at the same time, you're seeing a lot of like kind of venture funding coming from outside Japan, from inside Japan. Like for example, Rakuten, SoftBank. In their investments in Southeast Asia, or or just throughout Asia, actually, especially in SoftBank's case,、mm. so they might like the products J- Japanese startup, like the products created by Japanese startups, might not necessarily be making their way over to other markets. The capital from like big Japanese tech firms is definitely having an influence on the rest of Asia.、Mm. Well, the last place I wanted to talk about, but we can always leave it to the next time, is Hong Kong. 
Hong Kong, yeah, Hong Kong is interesting because they there's app, you know, obviously like a lot of financial capital there, but most of it is. Most of it, not a lot of it's being invested in a tech industry. Most of it's still kind of tied up in the finan- financial sector, in banking, the industries that Hong Kong is, finan- is, is traditionally known for. So even though the, the government is, I think, trying to create like a startup hub there, but there's still a long way to go for Hong Kong, definitely. But, you know, there, you're being to see more resources, like, for example, Nest, the venture firm. Let me see. In AIA Accelerator, they basically teamed up with uh, Insurance Giant to launch an incubator, or I mean an accelerator for startups, actually. And then there's, um, let's see, there's another, I'm just looking up the name right now. There's another, oh, Big Colors, Big Colors. There's also like um, another, they're also angel investor. They do basically early investments in the startups too. So I've met there's, a very interesting company there actually called Google Van. Oh, Gogo Van, yeah, Gogo Van. It's fascinating because uh, Gogo Van, um, they, there's Gogo Van, and then I believe there's Easy Van. Their competitor is Easy Van yep. in Hong Kong, and then Uber came out with Uber Cargo in the Hong Kong market. That's so right. that's it's. I mean, it's fascinating. It's like Uber, it's almost like they were like, huh? Well, you know, these companies are calling themselves the Uber's Uber of logistics. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should, we as Uber, should actually come out with like. A delivery, a delivery business, delivery offering too. And they're responding to market dynamics, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's fascinating because I think GoGoVan and EasyVan are looking towards Southeast Asia for expansion. So it's interesting to see if Uber will kind of tap into like the logistics market in Southeast Asia as well. Uh, well, that's something to look forward to. So that comes to the kind of the time to wrap up. And where do our audience find you? Uh, you can find me at TechCrunch, obviously TechCrunch, um, and then uh, my Twitter handle is just Catherine Shu. It's Catherine with a C S H U. Um, and let me see, yeah. And then people can email me at Shu S H U at TechCrunch dot com. And I'm really horrible at responding to email, but I do make an effort. <laughs> right. So you, we, we are definitely going to get you back because there's some we haven't fit, we didn't talk a lot about Korea, Japan, and Hong Kong, and probably we want to get a d- deeper dive in Taiwan another time. So um, you can find me at bleongcw or bernardleong.com or subscribe to at Analyze Asia, uh, Analyze with a S. Um, you can also go to our website analyzeasia.com. Uh, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia.com or subscribe through Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud and now we also have Blue Brewery as well and of course follow our Twitter and we hope to hear from your feedback. So Catherine, many thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me on. Yeah, it's really fun to just talk about Asia and tech in Asia. Cool. Yeah. See you. Okay, great. Thank you.